Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25 and uh, following. And I'm going to read that text. But before I read that text, I kind of want to catch us up. We've, last week, Aaron preached. And I know that was a blessing. He went through Psalm 23 and taught about God, Christ being our shepherd. Two weeks ago, we looked, though, at Ephesians 5, through 24. And we focused on God's command to Christian wives. I, I, I want to remind you, ladies, that your effectiveness, your effectiveness in sharing the gospel will in large part be determined by whether you display gospel-centered submission toward your husband. This is not some optional command tagged in at the end of a letter where Paul's saying, now if you get around to it, and if you feel like it, try to submit to your husband once in a while. That's not the way he writes this text. It's not a suggestion. Paul, rather, is not suggesting that you submit because it will improve your life or because it will make you a better person or because you'll feel good if you do it. That's not what he's doing. He's pleading with you as a Christian woman to preach the gospel through the way you live with your husband. That's what he's saying. He is not concerned with your feelings, with your life being better, with your life being easier. He's not at all concerned with your comfort, ladies. All he cares about, all he cares about is that you submit, and in doing that, submitting to your own husband, you preach the gospel to your family, to your community, to the whole world. Remember that our focus was very practical in that sermon. And I know, I know that many of you found that sermon helpful because you've told me others I'm sure it was helpful for and you didn't tell me. I also know that it caused a struggle for some of you. I, I understand that. You, do, you don't stand here and try to communicate the truth of this word, which is very deep and, and very much appointed, and not understand that it causes a struggle. Let me say something in that regard. It's obvious that in our congregation, or at least it's obvious to me, that there are varying degrees of understanding the command given in the marriage relationship. It, there's, there's, there's probably several opinions about how this, these verses and others like them are applied. I understand that. Some of you uh, need to hear a strong message on submission. You need to hear Women, submit to your husbands. You need me to bang a little. Because you may be struggling with rebellion, which is a sin. And, and you may be struggling with that. But the vast majority, this is my perspective, the vast majority of our congregation, especially our ladies, have been abused, I feel like, through the years. When these passages are being taught, they've been abused. They've gotten a lot of pounding. Unfortunately, many times these passages have been used to teach authoritarian leadership in the home. Dictatorship. Where submission means you shut up, you open your ears, and you do what I tell you to do as your husband. Now you may chuckle because that's not how it plays out in your home. Revert back to rebellion. Well, because... The harder your authoritarianism rides on people, the more they rebel. It's a given. Try it with your kids sometimes. 
And I just want to say that authoritarian leadership, that hierarchical structure of husband first, wife subjected, not submitted, subjected, and children underneath, that hierarchical approach to these passages is wrong. It is dead wrong. And it will kill your marriage, and it will enslave your children, and in the end, your life will be ashes. It will not be a picture of the gospel. And unfortunately, many of you will wake from your stupor where you've been abused and pushed into the corner for so many years. Too late. You will wake up from that stupor to realize your whole life has been wasted. And what you thought was being built as a kingdom unto God was nothing but a man-centered kingdom. And it will crumble. It's like a house built on sand. It will fall when the storms come. You and I better be reading this passage with gospel-centered intentions and building our home on the rock of Jesus Christ and His gospel in our marriages. If not, they, our marriages, not maybe, but will end in disaster. It may come in the form of a divorce. It may come in the form of living together as roommates for years. It may come in the form of all of your children living in rebellion and one of the spouse or both living in absolute outward rebellion. It may result in the whole house going to hell. So what I'm telling you is part of my intent last time and forever will be to help, hopefully help, you struggle through this passage to understand this in a whole other grid besides authoritarianism. Authoritarianism rips the gospel out of the marriage. It rips it out. Tears wives' lives apart. It destroys men. It makes them weak straw men standing on the sand waiting for the storm to come so they can collapse. It doesn't honor God. It doesn't uplift Christ. And it does not preach the gospel. So I, my understanding of this congregation is not that you need to hear submit, 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 but rather more of you need to hear what is submission. And men, you need to hear what does it mean to be the leader in my home. This is, uh, the truth is these pastors are often taught as anti-gospel. Women are treated as second-class citizens of the kingdom of God. You're not to simply... Listen, me, women, you are not to simply check your mind at the door of marriage and blindly follow your husband. That is not the Bible speaking to you. That is not the gospel. God is not honored and the gospel is not preached when you live your life as if your only input in the marriage or family is what we will eat for dinner at night or what we will purchase in the form of detergent or if we'll make our own detergent. That kind of thinking ends in absolute disaster. If you check your mind at the door of marriage and hang out in that corner of fixing food all the time and whether we ought to go all natural or have some preservatives, my goodness, your marriage will end in a disaster. Your marriage will end in a disaster. That's not the point. Please hear me. That's not the point of Paul. That's not the point of the Bible. Paul is not telling that to us. He is saying that you are to submit to your husband like, like, like the church submits to Christ. It's a willing submission. It's not a forced submission. It's a willing submission. When you get married, you become a greater thinker if you're going to survive, women. 
You don't, you don't check your mind. You kick it in gear. You start to contemplate, how do I check my own fleshly sinful desires and put Christ as supreme? Not me, not my husband, not my children. How do I exalt Christ as supreme in this home? That takes you thinking all the time. You can't check your heart. You can't check your mind at the door of marriage, women. And think, well, God trusted my husband with leadership, but I'm just going to follow him. He may be headed to hell in a handbasket. If you jump in it with him, you'll be there too. Don't do it. It's a willing submission, but it's a mind and a heart level reverence towards Christ first, secondly, to your husband. Reverence your husband. You don't reverence your husband. I'm being very, I know, very hard, very blunt, very straightforward. Try and make it, I want it, I want you, don't want you to leave confused. The way you reverence your husband is not sit in the corner and be quiet. The way you reverence him is to respect him. And therefore, whenever he's off track spiritually, you don't sit quietly by and say, well, one day God will tell him. You go to him in love and respect and honor and say, honey, I see sin in your life. I'm not preaching at you, but we need to pray about it. We need to see Christ about it. You need to plead the gospel with him. Honorable submission that is unto Christ is offering an opportunity for your husband to repent to Christ in front of you. And when he does, and no matter what the sin is, your reaction shouldn't be, how dare he? But it should rather be, I'm just like you. We're both sinners. What you did is awful, and you know what? I've done a thousand times more awful in our marriage. And I don't know how I'm going to overcome this, but I know Christ will. And so let's get on our knees and beg God together to forgive us our sins and forgive our sins as we forgive those who have sinned against us. Some of you ladies, listen, the most reverent thing you will do for your husband ever is sit down with him over a glass of sweet tea or coffee or Coke or your choice of drink and say, Honey, I love you. I see this in your life, and I don't know what's going on. I don't have the answers, but Christ does. I'm rooting for you. I'm praying for you. Some of the most reverent times you ever have with your spouse, women, is when you ask tough questions. And some of the hardest days you'll ever suffer is when he comes home and tells you of the gravest breach of trust with another woman. And you have to sit and look him in the face and say, I don't know how, but I know Christ can. Some of you have already been through. And you don't need to be ashamed of that story. You need to go in, in the right context in a trusted friendship and you need to help other women. God's given you that. Don't hide. Be a helper. In a reverent and loving way, help young women be more submissive to their husbands in this same way. Older ladies. These passages are not dummied down when we apply the gospel, but they are brought to their pinnacle of meaning. 
they're dummy down when we take the authoritarian approach. When we take the Christ-centered, gospel-centered approach to where we are on equal footing at the cross, equally important, but with differing roles as men and women, equal footing, equal value, but different roles and responsibilities. When we approach it gospel-centered like that, it will revolutionize our homes, our church, our community. And your children will long for Christ when that starts happening in front of them. They'll be beating the door down to know Jesus. In passages like this, we see that submission is reverent. It's lived out in practical acts of everyday leadership over your home, ladies, where you are made the chief servant of the home. You are the master, in a sense, of the home. Your, your, your responsibility is to make the home hum for ministry. Part of that's washing clothes. But part of that's setting a good table of hospitality for the neighbor so your husband can share the gospel. It's a varied work. You can't check your mind at the door in this kind of work. It's hard. It's ever-changing. I can call my wife at 7 in the morning, 10 in the morning, 12, 2 in the afternoon. By the time I get on 5, I've got different scenarios every time we talk. I don't know how she does that. I don't know how you ladies do it. Some of you are working on top of that outside the home. And you're still pulling that off. I don't know how you do it. <laughs> Only by the grace of God. Paul's not in this passage degrading women as some have said, but rather he's upholding women's value. He's saying they are, they are more important than you ever imagined, men. They have leadership over the home. And this submission emphasizes the success of the home as the husband is supported in his vocation to the point that he trusts you with his heart. That's godly submission. When I see a husband that trusts his wife with his heart, I don't even have to go inside their home. I can tell you godly submission is taking place there because he safely trusts her. Ladies, if you think you're doing it all right and your husband cannot trust you, something's broken and needs to be brought back to the cross and needs to be dealt with by Christ and his gospel. Not legalism, not hardness. Let me be crystal clear with you. Women have the subordinate role, the submission role in the marriage and the home. Look at verse 23. Ephesians 5, 23 says, For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. The second half of that verse, is himself its Savior, relates directly to Christ and not to a husband. No husband saves his wife. That's humanly impossible. That's a statement about our Lord. That's never applied to any human. The office of Savior only applies to Jesus. But what the first part directly applies to men. Women are to submit to their own husbands because husbands are the head of their houses like Christ is the head of the church. Now, some people like to monkey around with what it means to be the head. So I want to kick that down right now. It does not mean in any way source. You may have heard that. Like the, sword, the head of a river is the source of the river. 
So it's not speaking here about any kind of leadership. What it's rather saying is the man is the source of women. That's weird. It's not biblical, mainly. We can see Paul's intended meaning for the word head by looking at Paul, not some philosopher somewhere in the Greek world. Ephesians chapter 1, flip back one or two pages in your Bible. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 22, Paul says, And he put all things under his, Christ's feet, and gave him as head over all things to the church. What part of he gave him, he put everything in subjection under Christ's feet and gave him as the head of the church, don't we understand? He obviously is not speaking about source. He's speaking about leadership. In this case, with Christ ruling the church. So we have to look at what Paul means to get a clear message about what Paul is using this term to indicate. He not only uses it here, but let's look at the longer passage, if you'll turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, where he uses this same term. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2. He says, Now I commend you, because you remember me in everything, and maintain the tradition even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand, listen, that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband. And the head of Christ is God. Again, we have to understand what it means to be the head by what Paul means, not by what the Greek world might have meant, what the secular philosopher might have meant. What does Paul mean? God is the head of Christ. Christ is the head of man. Man is the head of his wife. Leadership. God is leading Christ. Christ is leading men. Men are leading their wives. Okay? So let's put that idea of source out of our mind. If we look at 1 Timothy chapter 2, though he doesn't use the term head, he, I think, explains where he grounds his teaching about the roles in marriage perfectly crystal clear. Beyond refute. Okay? It might surprise you where he goes and what he roots the, the, the roles in. He does not root these roles in a post-fall condition. He doesn't say, since you sinned in the garden, now women must submit to their wives, husbands must be the head of their homes. He doesn't say that. Look what he says. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 11. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Listen. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived. He willfully sinned. But the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Where does he root the roles for marriage? Not in post-fall, but in pre-fall. God created Adam first. And then he created Eve. In the, in, the, in the biblical mindset, that which is created first has preeminence, has the leadership. And if something names something else, it has the leadership responsibility over it. Who named Adam? God 
God named him Adam. God called him man. Who named Eve? Adam. That's right. When God created Adam, he brought all of the animals before him. And Adam looked at each one and classified each one and named each one. Not going to get into that, okay? I just want to say, what, he, what is he saying? Adam, you have dominion over all of creation. But Adam didn't find a helpmate. No one suitable for him. No one fit with him very well. So God put him in a stupor and brought from his side, not from his head. You might have heard the old preacher say that she might rule over him, nor under his foot that he might tread on her, but from his side that they might rule together, that there might be a, a, a partnership, a roles and responsibilities, but not a lording or a demeaning. Brought her out of the side. And when Adam wakes up, the Hebrew word is, we can't translate it into English. He was, let's just say, his socks were blown off when he saw Eve. She was beyond beautiful. He had never seen a creature like this. And he exclaimed in that exclamation, this is my helpmate. This is the one made like me. I have her. I want her. And he named her then Eve. Because she would be the mother of all living. The mother of every other human would come from the womb of Eve. Listen, that's where Paul takes the marriage roles is back there. And he says, look, God is the head of Christ. Christ created Adam and named him Adam. He then created Eve and Adam named her he gave the leadership role to the man from the beginning. This is not a curse. These roles are not a curse. They're affected by the curse, but they themselves are not a curse. And in the kingdom, the roles of the church and Christ will never cease. We will forever be his bride and he will forever be our husband, the leader, the head of the body. And so we see in this, these passages and in many others what Paul means when he teaches this idea of headship. Now, I promised that I would zero in on men this week and in the weeks to come. So you women think, man, we're getting cheated. He said he wasn't going to do this, and he did it. But I just, that's just the introduction. I'm just trying to get us to where we really are in the text. I want you to understand how crucial this thing is. We've laid a foundation. Men, I want you to know that these messages are going to be challenging to all of us. Us. All of us. And there's a couple, a few things I want you to know, first off, right off the get-go. First of all, I am not presenting myself as the one who is to be modeled. I'm not saying I got it figured out. And I'm living it perfectly. Just live like me. I'm the perfect husband. That would require me to either muzzle my wife or kill her, neither of which I look forward to doing. Because she can tell you I am not perfect. Far from it. And even if she couldn't speak, many of you have been around me enough to know he doesn't always treat his wife the way he's supposed to. I am not setting myself up as superior. I'm learning along with you. Second of all, we all need to focus on ourself, not someone else. Men and women and friends. Don't listen to these messages, men, and think, boy, I sure hope so-and-so's listening. He needs this message. 
Don't women spend the next three or four or five or however long weeks we're talking about men with your elbow firmly planted in the part of his body you came from. Don't do that. Everybody needs to hear the sermons, the messages, the teachings for themselves. Praying for themselves. Thinking how they don't measure up to Christ and they need the gospel. Okay? Third, uh, fourth, or excuse me, third, we must remember that the gospel's at stake in our marriage. We're not doing a self-help seminar on marriages. We're learning how the gospel flows out of our marriage. Big difference. Fourth, because a lot of Sundays you may go home and say, I didn't, there was no practical to-do in that. That's because the gospel's not a practical to-do-ism. It's a done-ism. Christ done it. You can't do it. That's, that's the gospel. And so you may go home a lot of times and say, I have failed miserably as a husband. You should go home feeling that way. Christ never fails. Therefore, I have the power to live as a husband. That's how you ought to go home. Fourth, we must remember that none of us can accomplish the commands of this passage in our own strength. And on a side note to that, I want to say, these sermons are not for non-believers. If you're sitting in here today and you're a non-believer, it's not for you. I know that's not politically correct, but I'm just being honest. You cannot, without Christ being your Savior and Lord, live in this kind of relationship. It is impossible. It's not even an ideal that I would tell you to try to live, because it'll only frustrate you. These sermons are intended for Christian women and Christian men. Now that tells me right off that we have a problem because there are mixed marriages here. There, there are those of you who are married to a lost person on either side. And the sadness, the sadness of that is this. You will live a gospel imperative and they won't. You will be being drawn up into Christ who is your head, learning to love all men, even your husband or your wife, as Christ loves his church, and your spouse won't. You will do what Paul commands to be done, and when you do it, you will be despised by your lost spouse. You will be hated and persecuted and mocked and made fun of. You will be marginalized and told you're insignificant. If you live by this gospel imperative and you have a lost spouse. But I want to tell you something. Nobody enters the kingdom of God without suffering. And your marriage may be the crucible by which you suffer every day of your life. And when you die and your eyes are opened to the reality of Christ and His kingdom in a full way, you realize that what you would have been was a thimble able to contain just a small portion of who God is in His glory. And through your marriage, He made you a dump truck able to hold a ton more of His glory in the eternal kingdom. What I'm saying is your marriage may never work like it should on this earth, but God is using it. And He is growing you in ways you could never grow without it. And you must, you must, it is... It is crucial that as the believing spouse, you keep your eye focused on Christ and the gospel. Even more, even more because of the persecution you will face.
So I'm not going to send you home with some little ditties to try out on your lost spouse, and they're all of a sudden going to flip a switch and say, you're the greatest thing since sliced bread. Let's hold hands. I may very well preach something, you go home and apply it, and they exclude you, persecute you, mock you, spit at you with their words. But listen, all the while if you're clinging to Christ, that's why the gospel is the focus, not your marriage. If you're clinging to Christ, as you're being persecuted, you're being stretched to hold the glory of God in a way you never could have held it in the kingdom. You don't have to die at the stake to be persecuted for your faith. You just have to live like a believer and you'll be persecuted. So, oh, we're out of time. I do want to say one thing to husbands because I promised I was. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives. That is the command. As Christ loved the church. How did he love the church? He gave himself for her. The command, men, is to love your wives. Now I want to challenge you a little. In verses 22 through 24, what did Paul emphasize was the role of the wife? You say it. What was her role? What is she to do? What is the command? What? what? Submit. When that's done and he transitions to the husband, what would you expect him to say? Husbands, submit your wife. Or, a kinder, gentler Christian word, be a leader. Nope. Doesn't even mention leadership. All that self-help guru junk at Books a Million about you being the man that she always wanted to be, that's not gospel. Men, you have one, one, one singular task in your marriage. Love your wife. How? As Christ loved the church. How's that displayed? He sacrificed himself for her. That's it. Not one word about being a leader. Not one word about subjecting her, submitting her, ruling over her. Not one. One word. Love her. That's the command in this passage. It's going to carry through until verse 32. One command. He's going to explain it, detail it, analogize it, break it out, but it all comes back to one thing, love her. And your love is to be complete, just like Christ. Spiritual love, physical love, mental and emotional love. You're to love her in every way God has created her. You are to love her. You don't get to say, I like these five things about my wife. It's these two I don't really like. I'm not going to love her over there. Nope. He gave her to you. She is your bride. He's not asking me to love my wife. He's telling me to love her. He's commanding it. 
It is an imperative. And I'm to love all of her, not part of her. How in the world do we do this? I just want to end. I'm not even going to get to the meat because we got communion. I don't want to cut it short. How do we love her? How can we understand love? Well, love in the Bible is the expression of the covenant. So when you got married to that lady, men, your wife, you made a covenant between the two of you and God. And that covenant that you made that day is a lifelong covenant. It is the picture of the covenant that God expresses through Christ with His church. So the one thing I want to say in closing is this. If you don't understand the gospel, the covenant love between God and His people expressed through Christ, you cannot understand the love that you men are to have, I'm to have for my wife. Your whole life should be consumed with understanding the atonement and the covenant God has with, between Himself and His people. If you consume yourself with that, the understanding of that covenant, you will then begin to apply that in your daily living with your wife. And that by that you'll be reaching the command of this passage. Anytime you hear the gospel, men, you should be hearing your role as the husband. When I say that marriages preach the gospel, that's what I'm saying. It's not just talk. So you entered into a covenant. Some of you want to enter into a covenant. Some of you may never enter into a covenant. You'll be single your whole life. Some of you entered into a covenant and you broke it. You, 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 you cut it off. And some of you entered into a covenant and your partner broke the covenant and walked away. And some of you entered a covenant and it was broken and now you've entered another covenant with a new spouse. And what I want to say about that is simply this. Whatever we can say about all those individual things, what we can say above all is that all of that covenant speak is grounded and rooted. It can only have meaning if it is rooted in the covenant God has with His people. And what is that covenant? It's expressed a lot of ways in the Bible, but clearly it is expressed this way. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. That's why you stand in front of witnesses and say, in sickness and health, in poverty and wealth, in the good that may light our ways, in the dark that may dampen our days, I will cleave to her, and her own will I cleave. 
until Christ separate us by death or his coming. That's why you stand in front of a group of witnesses and say those words. Because me and I want to challenge you. Some of you, the reason I'm saying this, some of you are on the brink right now. And I want to, I want to say to you, please don't give up on your covenant. Christian men in here, let us pack together as a community of faith to not abandon our wives. And like brothers, let's hold each other to it. And let's love each other enough, men, to ask tough questions and to pray for one another in this community. Because we have no shot of clearly proclaiming the gospel or we have very diminished return on our proclaiming the gospel if we then turn and abandon our covenant. You may have worked in the gospel ministry in this community for decades. And if you turn your back on your physical wife, you will say to all those lost people that you've ministered to, God may very well turn his back on his people. It's not worth it to me. I'm not believing in Jesus. So I'm begging you. And I'm committing to it with you publicly. And I want you to commit to say, men, this one point today, love your wife and do not abandon her. We, we got seven points we didn't get to. Seven things. Okay? Optimistic I am. But that one rides over them all. And you say, I failed. Cling to Christ. I'm already divorced. Cling to Jesus. I've, I've, it's already happened to me what you're describing. There's forgiveness at the cross. I'm in my second marriage. Then live in the covenant in that marriage. I'm never going to get married. Pray for married people. Interact with married people, singles. Interact with them. Eat at their table. Play with their children. Ask tough questions. Call them out on sin. And let them call you out on sin. You have a role. Everybody in this community has a role. In our marriages, for Christ's sake, let us cling to the covenant. Let us found our marriages on the covenant. And may we find Him coming and Him find us faithful. To Him and to our spouses. By His power, for His glory, till His kingdom comes.